Well, uh, let's offer a prayer of thanksgiving uh, then, uh, to get started here this morning. Uh, who wants to do that? Sam, would you do that for us? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the son of you today. Thank you so much for the food and for your that will be provided and help the hands Do you want raisin on your oatmeal or no? What? Do you want raisin? No, no raisin. Well, oh, I'm just no really surprised at the anti-Semitism coming out of the woodwork. To me, I didn't know. And it's so, so much uninformed. College kids saying from the river to the sea. And then the interviewers say, you really want to kill, you know, 12 million Jews? Is that what you're saying? Because that, that's what it says. Or that's what you're saying. They don't realize what they're saying. You know, kids are pretty vulnerable. Oh yeah. To me, yeah. it, it, it's just unbelievable. People. And you're going to support that? I understand a lot. Yeah. I understand a lot of this is spread through social media. I've been, I don't have a lot of time for social media as it is. And Horrible. They're just looking for something to protest about. It's the in thing to do right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, uh, just uh, Bob, how's uh, Tony? You heard from Tony? Yeah. Doing well. Yeah, he's, he's doing well. Where's he at? Mary says it itches like crazy. Oh, he's driving, he's driving like crazy. <laughs> Other than that, he's, he's doing yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, if it's if it's itching, that's a good thing because it's, it means that the pain's subsided enough that yeah, it's itching. You can, yeah. As opposed to just hurting. <laughs> mm. yep. Yeah, but he's he's still good. She says he's he's coming along well. Okay. Yep. I want to talk a little bit about the church. <laughs> He, uh, he starts his chapter talking about the, what the New Testament talks about the church. Uh, what, what are the marks of, of the church? The church of Jesus Christ. Well, it's a, it's a group of people who have faith, right? Mm -hmm. who, who believe in something. What do they believe in? Well, their faith is focused on Jesus Christ as yep. God's Son. 
<clears throat> trust in Jesus as Lord. <clears throat> That's how Paul, for example, as he, he writes to the Corinthians. kind of defines them <clears throat> to the church of God in Corinth sanctified in Christ, Christ Jesus set apart in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> that's what he means by the church, isn't it? <clears throat> but uh, uh, it's not just a matter of calling on Jesus as Lord. He also kind of defines that a little further in Galatians because uh, uh, there were some, you know, and this was of the, of the Jewish, the Pharisaic party, who called on Jesus as Lord and Messiah, but who also had to be circumcised and keep, keep the uh, all the laws. The laws, yeah. And of course, the laws meant the laws as they had been interpreted by the rabbis, all about food purity and all the regulations about the Sabbath and so forth and so on. And, uh, and he says, no, uh, that's not the gospel. <laughs> so it's, it's, that, that has a tendency to hang on to, as I told you when I was... It's not trust in Jesus Christ and something you do. It's trust in Jesus Christ, period. Isn't it? When I was in Israel, they... Uh, they, uh, if you went to a restaurant, you they they forced it on you. You know, you as I, I said, you know, you you couldn't have milk and meat together. You couldn't have. I mean, it just they just didn't allow it. Yeah, not a lot of cheeseburgers. No, not a lot of cheeseburgers. Well, I, I asked for non-dairy creamer. No, it looks like milk, so they wouldn't they wouldn't give you non-dairy cream or even. Because it even looks like it looked like milk, so that was close <laughs> enough. But it's just it's just weird. They didn't want the appearance even of yeah, working. Uh, that's pressure. right. Uh, and then uh, the uh, there are some verses which which talk about the the uh, the body of doctrine. And, uh, that's kind of not, it's not really defined very much. Uh, if you look at, he, uh, he, there are some passages mentioned in Hebrews. Look, uh, Hebrews chapter 3. Mentioned by... Hiding in the book here. Well, this, this doesn't seem to that doesn't seem to be the verse we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, I just I copied this out of the book here, chapter four, verse fourteen. Thank you. 
yeah, in chapter 4 and verse 4, he talks about the, the faith we profess. And uh, he's kind of assuming the faith there uh, means all of the things that we believe about Christ. Not only that we trust in Christ, but the things we believe about Him as being God's Son, the things that He has done, and how He died for our sins, etc. Uh, those, those beliefs about Jesus. And Jude mentions the faith once delivered to the saints. Uh, you, you don't deliver trust in Jesus. That can't be delivered. But when he talks about the faith delivered, he's probably talking about a body of teaching everything you've learned about Jesus. Right. So, but it, but it, in the end, it's focused on Christ, isn't it? That's what it means to be the church. Uh, but uh, the the other way to talk about the Marxism is not on talking about our faith in Christ, but the, but the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is very important. If you're really thinking about the church is defined really on the day of Pentecost, isn't it? That's, that's considered the birthday of the right. church. Mm -hmm. yeah. The disciples believed in Jesus before Pentecost, but were they really the church? We think of the church really beginning on the Pentecost. That's, that's the day that they say you know, the thousands were added. It's the first time they talk about being added to the, to the church. And that's the, that was the gift promised to all those who were baptized, right? Repent and be baptized and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But still at Pentecost, we're primarily dealing with Jews. Peter yeah. was, was pitching to Jews. <coughs> and uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, it's kind of twofold. The, the, the New Testament talks about the gifts of the Spirit. And, I, 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 and then it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are things like uh, uh, prophecy, healings, miracles, uh, and, and there's there's three different lists of gifts in the New Testament: Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, and 1 Peter. Uh, and 1 Peter kind of summarizes those. Uh, there was uh, uh, the ministry of the work. If you look at 1 Peter 4, verses 9 through 11, uh, well, beginning really in verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he has received. He's assuming that each one has received some gift. Yeah. Peter's writing, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody should 
use their gift, whatever they have, but it's a gift you've received. And they should be used to serve others. The purpose of the gift is to serve, to do something. And um, <coughs> faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. A gift is a sign of grace that's ministered and comes out in many different ways. And he mentions the two kind of two forms it comes out in. Uh, in verse 11, if he speaks, if your gift has to do with speaking, then you should, how should you do it? You should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If, then, but if, if it's not speaking, there's another form of, of gifts. And what's that other form of gifts? Verse 11. If anyone serves. So if, you, if, if, if it's a gift of service, just do it with all the strength God provides. <coughs> so there's, there's a, the minute there's gifts of speaking, teaching, prophecy, evangelizing, so forth. And then there are the gifts of serving, of ministering to others, doing for others. Because Corinthians 12 says that all the gifts are given for the common good. For the common good. The, uh, you kind of see the division back in the, in the chapter, uh, back in the book of Acts. When the, the apostles were preaching, they had the ministry of the word from them to, to preach and teach. But uh, they had started uh, just, uh, had things in common. And they were distributing food, and there was a complaint. Some of the some of the widows who were of Grecian origin, not Jewish, but were Jewish converts were complaining, you know, we're discriminated against. And uh, so uh, this was a, so they decided they needed seven men full of the Holy Spirit to do the, take care of this food ministry. That was a service. And the apostles then would continue to devote themselves to the, to the Word. So we have that kind of division already, don't we? The deacon, what we call the deacons. But uh, there's also something about just a lifestyle. Of course, the fruit of the Spirit, and I don't know if there's much difference in the fruit of the Spirit and the lifestyle because uh, those, those things really go together. But. It's pretty clear in the letters of Paul that the Gentiles have a, have a whole different way of living than they're supposed to have yeah. compared to the pagan way. Particularly in terms of partying, your sexual life, 
drinking, carousing, foul language. <laughs> Christians are <laughs> supposed to have a little different way of living. But like I said, I, I see the gifts is what you do, what you do, speaking and serving. The fruit of the Spirit is how you do it. You know, you could be a great preacher and speak eloquently, but not have love. Paul talks about that, doesn't he, first mm -hmm. and, if you, and if you're doing it without love, it doesn't profit you anything. But that, that's the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? How you do whatever you're doing. If you serve grudgingly, or with bitterness and anger, Now, I also added here, well, I don't know, does, uh, does Heine put in here the baptism and the, and the Lord's Supper as the mark of the church? I, I added these here. Yeah, he, he does uh, say that two additional marks are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Right. <clears throat> the, uh, <clears throat> and uh, all Christian denominations have baptism and the Lord's Supper except the Quakers. <laughs> have either one. Oh, really? I didn't know that. They say these are kind of external, earthly things that uh, don't really affect. Uh, what's important is the inspiration of the Spirit, the inward. And these external rites are important and significant. What do you think about that? Why? Why do you? Why do you need baptism? Why do you need the Lord's Supper? Uh, it's the gift of the Spirit, which. Uh, uh, enables us to, to preach the Word and to bear fruit. If you've got the Holy Spirit, why do you need baptism and the Lord's Supper? And to me, it's sufficient that both of those were instituted by Jesus Himself. 
Right. Some of the very few things that work. Well, they were, they were instituted for Jesus, so they must be important, right? <laughs> yeah. Whether we understand it or not. Exactly. <laughs> It certainly wouldn't be the first time that we didn't understand <laughs> something. Right. And as far as the disciples were concerned, there was tons that they didn't understand until until they received the Spirit. But <clears throat> do, uh, no matter how spiritual you are, do you sometimes need a reminder? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. The Lord's Supper is a reminder, isn't it? Do this in, mem in memory of me. And we need to be reminded, don't we? Yeah. And, and I think it's something that, that serves to bind us together. We, we do it together. We don't do yeah, it it's kind of like eating breakfast together, isn't it? <laughs> there's, a, there's a fellowship in this eating together, isn't it? That's a, that's part of uh, what it means, and, and uh, I guess uh, in discussion in the church that would be important to emphasize. It? it is a kind of fellowship, isn't it? It's a kind of binding together that we share this faith, and uh, that we're all adopted into one family, brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. That, uh, that could very well be added as another mark of the church, because mm -hmm. the sense of fellowship. Baptism is a sign, I think, that God gives us as a, uh, a kind of uh, assurance that we are buried with Christ. We are raised with Him. And that we have uh, a new life that's hidden with Christ. It's like you know, we, we, <clears throat> we, we give, we exchange rings in our wedding ceremonies. That's true, you could be married without a ring. But somehow or other, we feel like it's important to have these symbols, don't we? Mm -hmm. That uh, uh, we have flags. We pledge allegiance to the flag. Well, we don't pledge allegiance to a cloth, do we? But, but to the country for which that stands, and those things are important to us. Uh, because... <clears throat> I don't care how spiritual you are, you're still, we're still human beings in the flesh, aren't we? And God uh, manifests himself to us in these ways. Now, that's, that's a very brief, you know, what does the New Testament have to say about the church? Well, there's a, there's a whole lot there. If you wanted to do a study in the New Testament just on the church, 
that would that'd be a year-long study. Then. But the uh, the Nicene Creed actually refers to the church. It talks about we believe in God the Father, right? Okay. And we believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then, what does it say? We believe in one. Thank you. One holy Catholic and apostolic church. Those four words there, right? <clears throat> the uh, the the Gnostics um, had a purely subjective emphasis on. Um, on spiritual criteria meant having this special knowledge of the so-called secret teachings of Jesus but the, the church fathers emphasized the baptism the common creed what they call the rule of faith and the and the ministry of bishops these objective criteria here are bishops who were ordained going back to the apostles here is, here is baptism, uh, an objective uh, criteria, and the, uh, the rule the faith that has been passed down, the basic rule of faith which really kind of developed into the Apostles' Creed, which is a, a short summary of the faith, isn't it? But then by the, by the Nicene Creed expanded that into these four specific criteria. One, we believe in one, the unity. There's just one church. How many churches are there? <laughs> one. <laughs> one. <laughs> uh, uh, Paul always refers to the church in Corinth, or the church in, you know, so he, he doesn't refer to them as well, they are, well, they're local churches, yeah. Right. But the creed says even these local churches are one. Right. right. They are still bound together in some sense of in unity, aren't they? There's right. a unity between the churches at Rome and Corinth and Ephesus. Right. Just like wherever. Jerusalem. Now, that seems to be pretty fractured, though, doesn't it, today? <laughs> it's pretty hard to speak of a unity between the Roman Catholic and the Presbyterian and the Baptist and the Christian Church. Quest, um, um, the question. I have a question here. How do you understand? Is the church one? Or is it really? Is it? We would have to take 
if you're using the Nicene Creed, you're going to have to take out the one, the one here. We believe in a multitude of churches, holy, catholic, and apostolic. A multitude. But that would contradict the Catholic part. Because the Catholic really means like universal. Well, yeah. So that means that Christians are spread all over. They're not limited to one one nation or one race of right. people. That's still true. There are Christians found everywhere. You don't have to be of one ethnic group to belong. You don't think that the, the, when it talks about the Catholic, it, it isn't referring to, to like a, a unified? That's, well, the, uh, the word one refers to that. Right. Catholic just refers to worldwide. Okay. I think I've got a, if, uh, yeah, it's from the Greek word kapholo, which means in general. Uh, and the, the prefix is kata, uh, plus polos, whole. By the whole, all around. It's an origin, like we are not a, we are not a single whole race like the Jews. We're not united like that. That's not what, that's not what makes us one. That we uh, can trace our ancestry back to Abraham. Uh, we've been gathered from individual races here and there. That's what he means by Catholic. We're all over in general. Yeah. Although today, you know, we, we tend to connect it with the Roman Catholic Church. But. Uh, my, my question is, is, is the church still one in any sense? <laughs> to me, Bob, it, it's one in the sense that we all worship the same one God. The way we get there, the route we take is obviously it's way different between different denominations. Sometimes it's not that very different. It's just minor differences that make right. different denominations. We don't like you. Sometimes it's just the organization. Right. You know, or the color of the carpet. When we humanize it. And, and sometimes it's just uh, it's just history. Okay, you know, this this group has always done things this way, and you know that's the way they want to keep doing things. <laughs> they have their organization. You know, they they own their property. <laughs> so yeah, Bob. So we've taken the one church and we've fouled that it was like we fouled everything else. <laughs> One in spirit. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but well, if you, if you meet a Presbyterian or a Methodist, 
are a Catholic who loves Jesus, who is really committed to Christ and has an uh, understanding of the gospel, can you do you feel more of a, a unity with that person than you do the agnostic? Or, you know, but but some of those organizations, some of those churches, have taken it to the extent of saying that if you if you aren't part of their specific sect, their specific church, if you don't follow their rules, okay, then then you are not part of uh, the universal church. You are not part. You are not. You're not available for salvation and stuff because you're not following their rules. Is that the Roman Catholic doctrine? Uh, Is that that's your understanding? Among, among others. I mean, Churches of Christ, or, or many of them are very strict about if you don't attend the Church of Christ, then you're not going to attend Right. I mean, and, yeah. and the Churches of Christ are not. Uh, homogenous on, on that concept even. There, there, yeah, there are some. There are yeah. stricter ones, you know, the ones, yeah. no kitchen, no yeah. this, no that. I mean, they, they believe those to the extent that that isn't just a practice that they, they see that as sinful. You know, if you're not there every time the church meets, you know, all those kind of things. My mother belonged to one of those. <laughs> yeah. My daddy was a Baptist. <laughs> oh, there, there were some discussions there. Right there. <laughs> and, uh, and the preacher in Mama's church would never call him Brother Ross. He was not a brother. No. <laughs> and my mother, I guess, didn't consider him a brother in Christ for many years. Yeah. Now, later on, she... She did change her mind. <laughs> 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 Maybe my husband has a chance. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I had a week. Well, you know, look at look at you know, look at Ireland. You know, Catholics and Protestants are you know, killing each other over which church you belong to. And it's there's. Uh, I had a real good friend that was Roman Catholic. One of the best Christians I've ever known. I mean, really loved the Lord. And, you know, there are a lot of people who said, oh, you're Catholic, you know, you're, you're not going to heaven and you're, you know. But it's sad. There have been some changes uh, in the last 50 or 75 years. But when I was in campus ministry, this a long time ago, back in the 70s, one of the students that was coming to our fellowship and was very active and, uh, was from a, a strong Catholic family. And his mother was really concerned about, you know, this, this group that he's with, some kind of cult on the campus. Yeah, a bunch of heretics. And she asked, uh, she asked her priest to talk to her son about it. And so uh, the priest got together with him and talked to him. And he shared with the priest. You know, I don't know exactly what he told him, but he told him what we were doing, what we were teaching, how we, you know, he described it, I guess. And the priest went back to his mother and said, I think he's in something pretty good here. Don't worry about it. 
So the priest gave his stamp of approval. You got the imprimatur, huh? <laughs> Probably good discretion. I never thought about it because I should have put that in our publicity. <laughs> Christian Collegiate Fellowship approved by the priest of the Catholic yep. Church. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> the other word here is holy. The church is holy which of course refers to a state of being set apart for a special purpose, especially for a divine purpose. Something um, for, for a pure divine purpose. Uh, for example, uh, Paul writes in Ephesians, doesn't he? The church has been set apart. It's been made holy. Christ makes us holy because he set us apart. <clears throat> by cleansing her with the washing of water and the word. <coughs> kind of connecting the fact that of baptism and the and the, our faith in the gospel. That's what sets us apart. That's that's how Christ set us apart. Individual disciples are all called we're called holy or sanctified. Even those disciples in Corinth who had lots of problems, didn't they? They're called sanctified. They're called saints. They were called holy. Uh, now, they, if you are set apart, you should live like that, shouldn't you? Right. You should act holy if you've been made holy. But there is a difference. You're, you're first of all set apart and made holy, and then you should act holy. So that's a mark of the church, that the special people uh, set apart. Now we've got this word Catholic, which we've already talked about, <clears throat> and, and it has nothing to do with being necessarily Roman Catholic. <clears throat> It has to do with their saying that we're not limited to uh, uh, one particular nation or geographical area or one ethnic group. This is the gospel for That's the kind whole of interesting. world. That's kind of interesting, though, that, that, that the church, the Roman Catholic Church, Roman Catholic, are really kind of, that's like an oxymoron. Yeah. Because they're saying Roman, and yet Catholic means universal, and you know it's like. So which is it? Well, but it doesn't mean that they when they say Roman, they don't mean that we're limited to the Roman Empire. Right. The Chinese are welcome too. Right. Well, and and and, and wasn't that also the distinction that came about? Uh, between the Eastern Orthodox, when the when the Catholic Church split. Yeah, that's that's really kind of distinguishing. Uh, good the, morning, guys. Uh, hey, morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning. Good you know, uh, uh, when you had the ecumenical councils, you had the bishops, and there were certain bishops that were kind of recognized uh, as maybe primary bishops, like. In Constantinople, which is in Turkey, 
and in Rome, in uh, Syria, and Antioch. <clears throat> there were bishops in every every church or every diocese. That's we really didn't talk too much about how that developed. You know, in the New Testament, Paul talks about plural bishops or overseers in the local church. But in the second and third centuries, there was a development where there came to be kind of one bishop over the whole thing. A number of house churches. Of course, they started as house churches right. in the second, first, second century, <clears throat> and, there, and then I guess they they would kind of appoint one bishop to kind of oversee the welfare of all these little house churches, and, and that's how you came to have one bishop <clears throat> over a di what's called a diocese. But. Uh, <clears throat> Originally, these bishops were all considered equal uh, with one another. But uh, the Roman part of the church <coughs> said, no, the Roman bishop, the bishop who sits in Rome, he's the first. He's, he is the head of all the others. He's, he's a little bit above. They're not all equal. <coughs> but the... Uh, the churches in the east, Greece, Russia, Syria, all, they said no, we can't accept that. But there was a doctrinal disagreement about the Holy Spirit, but two that led to the separation. But the Greek Orthodox churches, you know, have always maintained that there was this uh, equality among the various bishops <clears throat> and that if there was a doctrinal disagreement you had the bishops had to come together and make a decision you didn't leave it up to one one bishop to make a ruling uh, now the, the way we Protestants settle it if there's a doctrinal division, <coughs> we just form another church. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's a man for himself. <laughs> Let's go down the street. <laughs> we split the churches. Like, you don't, you don't even recognize the authority of the pastor in your church, do you? If you disagree with him. I, uh, I do have a, uh, un now what the, finally this word apostolic, what is it, what does it mean that the church is apostolic? Well, I've got the, when I say the Catholic definition, this is the Roman Catholic definition. <laughs> it's not the universal definition, but it's the Roman Catholic definition. Um, uh, and it, uh, it describes what's happened here. Uh, Bob, would you read that beginning with by the beginning of the second century? By the beginning of the second century, the figure of a single bishop who is the head of the communities appears very clearly in the letters of Saint Ignatius and Anna. 
who further claims that this institution is established unto the ends of the earth. During the second century and after the letter of Clement, this institution is explicitly acknowledged to carry with it the apostolic succession. Ordination imposition of hands, already witnessed to in the pastoral epistles, appears in the process of clarification to be an important step in preserving the apostolic tradition, guaranteeing succession in the ministry. The documents of the third century, tradition of Hypolipus, show that the conviction, this conviction, was arrived at peacefully and was considered to be a necessary institution. <laughs> so what does apostolic mean? It has to do with the <coughs> succession, <coughs> the succession of bishops. That the, uh, um, for example, the apostle Paul would ordain Timothy, and then Timothy would ordain others, right? And then those would ordain, you know. As they got older, they would have ordained other men through the laying on of hands, and then those men later, years later, would ordain. There would be a succession that could be traced all the way back to one of the apostles. So that's what apostolic means. So, so are there are there documents, for, for example? James was kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem, right? Was it James? James? Yeah. Okay, so are there documents that indicate who James's successors were? That, uh, or Peter's? Were, I mean, we know that, we know by Paul's letter that he kind of, well, the, you know. Well, the Roman Catholics say that they do have, you could find, I think there is a list somewhere at least for the bishop at Rome. Okay, that goes. And maybe, and maybe some of the other bishops, <coughs> uh, like at Constantinople or uh, uh, the Russian Orthodox or the Syrian Orthodox, I don't know. But I, okay. I, I one time remember seeing a list that supposedly goes all the way back to Peter, who ordained his successor at Rome, and so on. So they, they claim they do have a list of successors. Yeah, I'm not sure from a his, historical standpoint whether it's it's believed, considered to be valid. Right, right. There is supposedly but, but But at least that's the belief that it, there is a succession. Mm -hmm. And that it's important to be in that succession. Uh, now, in the second and third century, that was one reason that was important. I think I'll talk about that here. Uh, uh, on the second page here, point, point number two on the second page. Uh, by linking uh, the teachers, it's the teachers in the church or the bishops to the apostles, it was a way of countering the Gnostics who claimed to have this kind of secret tradition 
you know, that the teachings of Jesus had come down through these teachers that had no connection with the apostles themselves. And that was the real spiritual knowledge, contrary to the, to the gospel you know, that was being preached. But the church said, no, we have the teaching we have that contrary to your teaching is something that came to us from the apostles to his successors so we can we've got something that we can count on they, they use that as a way of countering the gnostics secret knowledge well, and, and basically that's what islam is islam is a what they consider to be a second revelation is a what? A second revelation. Of, yeah. Of two, well, two, uh, but that's uh, not uh, particularly a secret revelation. That's right. in the Quran. The, the Gnostics claim to have this secret spiritual revelation. Uh, but uh, the uh, the apostles had this. Uh, there was this public teaching that Peter had passed on to his successor passed on to his successor and the teaching could be traced from one apostle down to the present leader of the church so you could trust that from Jesus because Jesus you know selected the apostles right so that was used as a as a way to confirm the faith against the, the Gnostic heresy uh, so Okay, so how does the, for example, how does, how, how does the non-denominational Christian churches, how, how, how do they, we look at apostolicity? Yeah. <laughs> right. Is, is the central Christian church apostolic? Is it an apostolic church? Right. Your church, Baptist church, right? Mm -hmm. Is it an apostolic church? Very good question, yeah. That, that's part of the Nicene Creed right. that the church is apostolic. Well, point number one here. I had just a very one simple statement. Second page, point one. Protestants usually define apostolicity or the, the fact that the, or the, the church is apostolic. How does that mean? Well, that's conformity to the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament. If you're teaching what the New Testament, the New Testament is from the apostles. If you're teaching that, then you're apostolic. Right. That's how we would. So it's, so it's not so much Protestants view it not so much as leadership as it is doctrine. It's based on the on the text. Right. Not not on the person. Right. Right. But of course, you see, in the second and third century, there were not a lot of. There were not a lot of New Testaments. Right, right, right. And, and even what was the New Testament wasn't clearly defined yet. Right. Well, right. Wasn't we, we've got a clearly defined text, which we believe goes back to the teachings of the apostles, don't we? Right. Uh, the, uh, but he doesn't really talk too much about the question of the, well he kind of refers to 
theological authority because uh, the church had to decide whether are you going to be Gnostic or not, particularly the Gnostic area. And there were other issues that had to, that were debated. Uh, for example, about uh, you know the, we talked about uh, the Trinity. It was uh, was the Son of God created, or is he uh, is he eternally begotten? Yeah. That was one. So how? Um, how does the church decide what is the authority to decide disputes? Apostolic and apostolic succession puts that into the hands of the bishops. They make that decision. In the Greek Orthodox, it's the bishops together who make it. Uh, and, that, and that's true with the Catholic Church, too, that the bishops have a role in defining doctrine. But at the end, you know, the final authority is the Pope. Right. Uh, question. What is your theological authority? If there's a debate, how do you decide? The Word. Go to the book. Yep. Go to the, the word. book. The Go Word. Okay. Does Jack Ramey say the instruction manual? <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, let's say uh, uh, you you believe baptism is, is uh, that remission of sins comes when you're baptized, and the Baptist believes remission of sins comes before you're baptized. Now, how do you decide that? You both believe the New Testament, right? What's your authority in making this? How do you defend it? Because all of us Protestants, the Baptists, Christian Church, Presbyterians, and Lutherans, we all believe the New Testament. But we still disagree, don't we? Yeah, of course. So we don't really have a very nice way of resolving that the way the Orthodox and the and the Roman Church does by saying, well, there's a group of bishops who have to gather together to come to a decision, or leave it up to the in the end to the bishop at Rome. That's where we are, isn't it? <laughs> but even, but even then, even in those organizations, you have, you like, for example, in, in your example of the, uh, of the, the Protestant youth organization with the Catholic kid, okay. Whereas the, the rule from up high, and Catholics might say, no, this child shouldn't be going to these non-Catholic things. <clears throat> At the local level, okay, you still have you still have somebody saying, you know, using their own judgment to say there are good things happening here, and this is good for this young man to be associated with other Christians, albeit not Catholic Christians. So even in those cases, you have examples of where 
you know, at the lower levels, things are being assessed based upon their their beliefs and, and what the, the Bible teaches as opposed to what is being dictated from above. Well, that's true, yeah. Uh, but and we, and we see that. But, but see if, that. Uh, uh, let's say there was another priest who disagreed with, with this yeah. priest and said, no, you, you need to tell that kid, he needs to stay away from that. And then the, the bishop would resolve it. Would, 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 yeah. make a decision. Right, right. If somebody were to, if somebody were to question it and if been a push, push it up the ladder, right. right, the decision would be made from above, right? Yeah. Well, um, to close real quickly, uh, um, our uh, Baptist, both Baptists and Christian churches, we are really in, in, the, uh, in the heritage of the Calvinistic tradition. If you look at our history, uh, our way of teaching, uh, our fundamental teaching is can uh, be traced back to Calvin. And, and to some modifications, not that we all follow Calvin strictly, but Calvin said that the true, the marks of the true church are the preaching of the Word of God and the celebration of baptism in the Eucharist. If the church is preaching the gospel and they are baptizing believers and celebrating the Lord's Supper, then that's the true church. Um, and Luther. Luther went beyond that. He said not only the Word of God, baptism, the Lord's Supper, but he added the office of the keys, which is uh, uh, it goes back to Matthew 18. It says somebody sins, you know, you go to him, you can't resolve it. You send uh, the elders to talk to him, and if that doesn't resolve it, then you you, you uh, discipline him. Now, that's uh, what he called the keys of loosing uh, and binding. <coughs> loosing and binding. He says another mark of the church is having called and ordained ministers. It's not just it's not just a bunch of people getting together and doing whatever they want to do, but you have uh, ordained leaders. There is some structure, some or some uh, organization. Prayer and praise and thanksgiving to God. I don't guess we'd disagree with that. <laughs> and church discipline. We don't, we don't have too much church discipline anymore, do we? No, no. not much. <coughs> well, That's a pretty brief survey. <laughs> what's what's the next chapter on here? We're we're getting close to the end here. Washing Yeah. Okay. <coughs> next we talk about baptism. And then the last chapter. No, there's two chapters on the, on the uh, eschatological hope. One specific chapter. And then one at the end of the millennium. <coughs> I was kind of surprised that he devotes a whole chapter just on the millennium.
Alright. 